So it's been three weeks. I again want to express my appreciation to Matt, who's not here. Oh, yuck. Um, but no, it's been great that he was willing on these weeks when I can't be here to step in and fill in. And we're going to touch a little bit, actually, on what he covered last week. It dovetails very nicely with where we are in Genesis. And that is that, um, so on review of Daniel, um, what did we cover in Daniel last week? The general gist of what we've been on. What, what dream is Daniel interpreting? The statue, which is representative of, yeah, multiple kingdoms. So we have all these nations and kingdoms that, that God is dealing with. And one of the big errors of studying the Old Testament is to ignore the fact that over and over and over again, God deals with nations as nations. Um, and all the people in those nations get dealt with um, based on the overall quality of what those communities are, what those ethnic groups are, or what those <clears throat> nationalities are. And God is interested in the nation. So as we've gone through Genesis, we started Genesis 1 and 2, we see creation. Genesis 3, we see the fall. And then we move from the fall to this promised seed that we've been following, this, this idea that there's a promised seed <clears throat> even up to the time of Noah and the hope that Noah might be the one that removes the curse. We see the destruction of everything. And then after the flood, we see the establishment of nations again um, or the establishment of nations for the first time. And we saw a little bit of that with the family of Cain and the family of Seth. But then we really see it come on and people start dividing into people groups. And out of one of these groups, <clears throat> excuse me, out of one of these groups, we see Abraham come. And Abraham is promised that he will be um, blessed by God with not only descendants, but a land. Abraham, by faith, leaves uh, the land of his fathers and moves into the promised land. Certainly not a perfect character, but... Uh, so far, so good. He's still the man that God has chosen and, and they're moving ahead. But along the way, there's this emphasis on individual nations. And in fact, this is also uh, written to the nation of Israel as they have left the nation of Egypt and they're moving in to displace and destroy individual nationalities or kingdoms, these kingdoms being built around individual cities of where it is they're going to occupy this promised land. In fact, we saw, um, it would be about a month ago now, that Abram is called to go and defend Lot, who's been carried away um, from one of these kingdom states uh, of Sodom. He's been carried away um, by kingdoms that come out of the north. And we see this interaction between uh, Abraham and the rest of the people. I'm going to stick with Abraham now because he's going to get his name this week. Abraham gets, uh, um, Abraham interacts with these kings that are around him and they go in, in, on this rescue mission and are very successful. Abraham is the kind of the chief of these kingdoms um, and he's blessed by um, Melchizedek and he ties to Melchizedek. We see this uh, enigmatic fig figure who is a foreshadowing even of Christ himself. Certainly his priestly line is. And then 
That priestly line we see is outside of actual uh, Mosaic law or Levitical law. There's this priest that isn't beholden to the law at all. And, um, and then we see that, again, God promises uh, Back in chapter 15, we see that God again promises Abraham, look, you're going to be great. You're going to have all this land and um, it's going to come at a cost. You're going to, it's going to be a long time from now. Um, but again, your kingdom will be set up. So we would be remiss to, to think that the Old Testament just deals with specifically individuals. There is a, a um, promise about nations as well. So in Genesis 15, 16, we see that Abraham is promised to be the father of nations that, and that they'll receive land. And, and what makes a, a nation is land, people, and some sort of political system. And that political system and that nation are all going to tie into the seed that was promised back in, in three, that that is the culmination of what we're working f- towards since the beginning of the fall. In fact, this whole establishment of nations, uh, I would say, is ultimately working towards this establishment of the seed that will be Christ, who will be King of King and Lord of Lords. I don't think that's a title just to say that, well, yeah, he's better than all the other kings. He's actually going to be a king, and he's actually going to rule his nation, and his nation will be the one in which the whole world revolves around. So I think we're, we're marching towards that as well. That's kind of been added on to this promise of a seed. Um, this, this covenant that we covered back in chapters 15, 16, uh, we saw was an unconditional unilateral covenant. You remember the, the, the animals were split in two and God passes through while Abraham's asleep and watches it happen. God's the one who promises, this is what I'm going to do. In fact, right after doing that, Abraham fails to trust God and he and Sarah try to fulfill this, this line of promise through Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, and Ishmael is born. And we saw the disaster that that turns into um, an abject or miserable or, or most miserable failure that that turns into. And yet Abraham is said to have trusted God, believed, and it was counted to him as righteous. And and I think it's really important for a couple things, the way this plays out chronologically and for this week is that just understand that Ishmael comes along before what we're going to cover today is is circumcision. Ishmael came along before that and God defines specifically who is going to be the nation of Israel, that it isn't through this promise that God's building isn't through Ishmael, it's through Sarah's son. Um. But that occurs before this circumcision, before this part of Jewish law is established. And it also, um, the declaration of Abraham's righteousness happens before this Jewish law is established. That righteousness is apart from the nationality of being Jewish, and it's apart from... um, Justification of the law is also apart from following laws specifically. That there's something more going on here. So Genesis 17 and 18 then is dealing with the descendants of Abraham and the establishment of them as a people group of their own ethnic Israel. Like I said, Abraham is declared righteous by his faith as a legal declaration 
and is clear even in, and then the other thing that's interesting about this whole chronology of 1516 is right after doing so he fails miserably again in, in faith um, so there's this faith that was counted to him as righteousness even though he's not at all a perfect man even though he's the one that's held up hey to the Jewish people in Christ's day they said you know we are the children of Abraham and believe that he is above and beyond anything that they themselves can be in his own righteousness and we see that, that that's not the proper view so let's look at, uh, we've got a lot to cover. We'll start 17.1 through 8. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So he goes from being called uh, uh, exalted father to the father of multiple. This is the literal translation. For I have made you the father of multiple nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So we see here that God is making promises to Abraham and there is no conditionality that God gives here that says, if you do this, I will do this. Now he does say back in, in verse 1, after, after the, the emphatic Abraham is old statement, he's 99 years old, God then says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. There is a command for purity here that God gives. And it would be wrong to assume that this is, well, okay, so if Abraham walks blamelessly before God in verse 1, then verses 2 through 8 will take place. If he doesn't, 2 through 8 don't take place. And we know that's, that's not what this is saying because Abraham does not act blamelessly before God after this. And yet God continues to repeat this promise. This is the same promise that he's been making this whole time. It's a repeat of the unconditional covenant to multiply him and to make him many nations. And, and again, we see that, that gift that God gives of, of the nationality of Israel and the kings that come forth from Abraham. These are the, the promises of God. These are the good things that are coming from this covenant. Abraham is, is um, given a new name here, as we mentioned. And then we also see um, oh, let's see. Yeah, so he's given a new name, and then he promised to become. Uh, uh, promised that nations and kings are going to come out of him and that his descendants are going to be actually part of this covenant. 
So you look at verse seven, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. This isn't just a covenant God is making with Abraham himself. It's a covenant he's making with the people of Israel. And again, you don't have to go far to see that the people of Israel are going to screw up. They're going to mess up. In fact, when we look and see the sin that Sodom is about to be judged for, if you look for what takes place in Sodom, when the angels go there to, to warn Lot to get out, the reaction of the people in Sodom to drag these men out into the street and rape them is, takes place again in Judges, in the nation of Israel. So we see that even Israel is going to get, parts of Israel are going to get as bad as what Sodom is about to get judged for. So we know that this is, a, this is a covenant that's given to these people in spite of who they are, in spite of what they do, that God is working here to, to accomplish something in these people. So the, the covenant is between Abraham and God and his descendants after him. So you can see, and then I'm sorry, in verse 8, then also we see this, this idea of it started in verse 7 as an everlasting covenant, but, and you'd think, well, that just means the, the people of Abraham, but God doesn't say, no, it's not just, or God says, it's not just the people that have an everlasting covenant, but I'm going to give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings. You're just a sojourner in this land of Canaan, but I'm going to give this land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. One of my favorite stories from the book of Joshua is when Caleb comes and says, I was faithful when I went and spied out the land, so now I want some land, and here's the land that I want. And, and Joshua says, well, let's inquire of God, and sure enough, you get the land um, for perpetuity. You get it as an everlasting. You and your descendants, Caleb, will always have this land. When the individual tribes move into the land of Canaan, in the time of Joshua, they come up with rules to make sure that that land, even if, let's say, a guy has 12 daughters and no sons, well, normally the land would get passed to a son. There's no son to give it to. Well, that's going to stay with the daughters then, and if they marry, whoever they marry is going to have to move into that family and that tribe because that land is going to stay in that tribe as, as, a, as a perpetual possession you press me on it, I'd say those things that Caleb someday is going to, his descendants and Caleb himself will actually own the land that's promised to him in Joshua. This is promised to his descendants perpetually. It's an everlasting covenant. They are God's people with God's rulers in the land he gives him. God is establishing and promising that this nation of Israel is going to be established and it's going to be forever because he is the one that's doing it. So it makes sense that God, back in verse 1, says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I have no trouble reading that not as conditional, but instead as this is the expectation. If you are worshiping and following a holy God who does all these things for you, your response needs to be to walk before me and be blameless. This is the expectation. You do this, period. I am going to establish a covenant. I am going to do these things. This is what I want from you. This is what would be expected from you. This is how you should react. And then we move to uh, verse 9 through 14. 
We'll read through there. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So we have this idea of, or this, this act of circumcision on the flesh of the foreskin. So we're having the male foreskin. Genesis is going to get really tricky because there's kids in here. But it doesn't get easier. So we're having here a surgical procedure, meaning cutting is going on and the removal of skin related to male genitalia. Good, we're done. We're not going to go back and cover it. Um, I just remember being seven, eight years old and I have no idea what this is. This is just weird. And so it probably didn't help the young ones in here. But... Um, this is, this is clearly related not only to the males, but it's also related to procreation. It also is totally different than any of the nations around them. It is a way, certainly, for them to be marked off as different. And, but why did, why did God give circumcision? Well, the good thing is, he tells us why in verse 11. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So just as the expectation is going forward, you're working with a holy God, be holy before me, be blameless before me, the sign that you have made this covenant, which is not conditional, this isn't adding conditions to it, the sign of this is that you have been circumcised in the flesh of your, of your foreskin. It's a sign of the covenant. Covenants listed above. The covenant is given before the promise is made, before circumcision is established. The promise was made back in chapter 15 and chapter 16 that God is made to do this, and circumcision isn't even mentioned. There is no need for this part of the law to be fulfilled by us as individuals in order to be saved any more than any other part of the law must be fulfilled by you in order to be saved. This then is, when we're looking at this, we're dealing with, in chapter 17 and 18, we're dealing with what makes the nation of Israel stand out. How are they separated from the people around them? How is it that they are identified as God's people? What behavior or what sign has God given them to say, you are different? In fact, you'll remember who is the covenant for? Who's the covenant between God and? We just covered this. Abraham and his descendants after them. Who gets circumcised? Everybody. All males. Yeah, so, so who does that include? 
his, the kids that are going to come through Isaac. Who else? Servants. Servants. Whether they're born there or not. And who's the other person that's really important here that's included? Does he have any other children? Ishmael. Ishmael. Is Ishmael the one who the, who the covenant is with and his descendants? No. Is he circumcised? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So this is, a, this is a sign that this nation, this group of people, and everyone associated with them, everyone who is part of this nation whether they're actual descendants through Isaac or not, are circumcised. This is a way to show that this group of people is different. This is God's group of people who are moving forward with a covenant that God has given them. It isn't just for Isaac's descendants. It is for all of Isaac's descendants, Abraham on down, down that line, if you're a slave, if you're a child of, if you are associated with, you will be circumcised. There is no righteousness that is earned by this. This doesn't in any way, shape, or form now, well, since Ishmael is circumcised, Ishmael is now going to be part of the covenant. It's a sign of obedience and inclusion so that we see that if you are not obeying this, you are cut off. It's your way of saying, I want nothing to do with the covenant. This covenant is not for me. I'm out. I don't want to be part of God's people. Well, that's fine. You're cut off then. You're done. Go. It's an interesting play of words as well. So verse 15 and moving forward. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall call her name Sarah, not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. So she is princess. I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Again, we see in this surrounding this idea of circumcision is the idea that God is establishing a nation. That is the context that circumcision comes in. It is not a context of somehow being righteous or somehow fulfilling this covenant. It is within this idea of setting themselves as a sign that they have this covenant, but not fulfilling the covenant itself. Verse 16, I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her, then I will bless her and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. And in the back of your mind, you should be thinking, Jesus Christ, he is one of these kings. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So just in case you wondered, is Abraham totally trusting in God right here? No. So that whole be blameless walk before me cannot be conditional upon this covenant being fulfilled. God's going to explain to him, no, but Sarah, your wife will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. 
He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in the house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in that same very, very same day as God had said to him. And Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son. All the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. The author of Genesis is doing everything possible to make you understand what it means to be circumcised and what it does not mean. And again, is associating it with the nation of Israel itself as a national sign that we are a special people called out to God. In fact, you can walk through most of, well, probably all, well, no probably. You can walk through the Levitical law and you can say, so many of these things are things that they are supposed to do as a nation because they have a holy God living amongst them, living in the temple with his glory present there. And this is where the start of that occurs, this idea of you will be a different people than everyone else. And here is the sign that we're going to give to you to make that clear. So backing up, the covenant will flow through Sarah. So her name is changed as well to, to, to delineate. Now is when my plan is, is beginning to work, is beginning to be played out, Abraham. We see the doubt of Abraham asking God, well, what about Ishmael? Can't it just go through Ishmael? And we see by God's response, when he says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. God understands how dear this child is to Abraham. It's not like Abraham is asking God to bless this child who he does not love or who he doesn't care about. He's not some bastard child of Israel. He's Abraham's son. And Abraham, after going almost 90 years without a child, has Ishmael. And how dear that child must have been to him. Probably the closest thing we see to that, or the closest thing we see after this is how dear it is when uh, Joseph is born and the way his father treats him when finally the wife he loves gives him a son. So Abram not only is, is kind of doubting whether or not he can actually be born or actually have another heir, but he also loves, he has a love for Ishmael himself and God blesses that in verse 20 and, and promises to bless Ishmael in the future as well, but says, but he is not the one. This is not where the line is coming from. And that whole idea that there's a line that it's going to flow through should take you right back to the very beginning when we have Cain and Abel. And that line is, is, doesn't come through either one of them, but through their little brother. And the looking for the line as it's flowing forward, hoping for the one that will bring about the king that is to rule forever. These things just repeat over and over again in the book of Genesis. So God defines the covenant as flowing through Sarah and blesses Ishmael all the same, but in a different way. 
even though he's outside the covenant. He's now part of God's people, but outside of this covenant of, of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And then God finishes the conversation. When God finishes talking with him, God went up from Abraham. The conversation's done, Abraham. We're done. I'm leaving now. We're going to see that again. God gets the last word, the final word, and the word that, that matters. All questions are answered, and God leaves Abraham. So then Abraham has to go tell Sarah her name is changed. <laughs> yeah. Her name is not Sarah. Yeah, and here's why, because... A year from now, you're going to have a baby. <laughs> yeah, he kind of cradle robbed, if you think about it. I mean, she's ten years younger. What would you say to verse 17, where people would cite that to potentially repeat the fact that there were people that lived hundreds and hundreds of years and sired children hundreds and hundreds? Um, I would say that. So from, from a strictly biblical standpoint, we are seeing that the age at which you can sire children has drastically been reduced, right? Because people were having kids in their hundreds, no problem. Abraham, Abraham gets up to being 100 and he's like, there's no way I can have kids. And we're not that far removed from the flood when that was happening. Um, this is clearly a miracle that is, takes place, that... that not only is Abraham able to father children, but Sarah is able to bear them um, after who, her womb has been dried up. Um, she is, she is post-menopausal. He is post-manopausal. They're done. Um, but yeah, I think, this is, I think this is a miracle work by God. Is that what your question is? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When you say just, you have to remember that Ishmael's like that's 13 years ago. So yes, back then he could. And we would hope that he, he, it proved that he wasn't the problem the whole time, basically. Which the other thing that is kind of amazing in the background, as far as that goes, is that as far as we know, Abraham can have children and we don't have a bunch of concubines with children of Abraham running around. The Abraham's actually faithful to Sarah it appears, up until this whole time when Sarah says, hey, why don't you take my maidservant? And he's like, hey, yeah, we can go do that. That sounds good. And then disaster. But yeah, I think, I think that uh, it is a, an incredible thing that we're seeing take place here. And certainly not to fault Abraham for wondering how it could be possible, but my issue is, is that he's saying, well, why not do it this way, God? Look, we came up with this great plan of having a kid through Hagar. How about we use that? And it's like, no, God, that did not work out well. Let's just leave, leave Ishmael out of this. Well, bless Ishmael. Don't worry about it, but let's move forward. So chapter 18, um, 
moving on and then we'll come back a little bit to circumcision. There's time at the end because there's still a lot to cover there. Because clearly what you just learned about circumcision, we just learned from what's in this text, was not learned by the time Galatians rolls around. Um, Certainly not learned by the time of Christ, but Paul still deals with this issue of the value of circumcision and what it means. And he doesn't do it by coming up with this new idea. He comes up with it by actually looking at the text and explaining the text to them all over again. The Bible goes back and exegetes the Bible over and over and over again. And I think I've, I've hit on that multiple times now so that you, you get that idea that we don't need a new interpretation to understand this. We need to actually apply what it is that it meant at the time it was given. But let's jump to chapter 18. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day when he lifted up his eyes. This is Abraham. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, my Lord, if I now, if, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourself. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant and hurried to, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. So we have God visiting Abraham here in bodily form. So much in bodily form that the physical interaction includes reclining, washing, and eating. Resting. Taking a pause in, their, in, the, in what they are actually doing. We will get with that in the next chapter, but yeah, angels. Man, slow down. Um, Don't read ahead. Next week we'll cover it. Um, So God visits them in bodily form. Abraham recognizes it, which is just astounding in my mind, because I can't imagine he was walking around with this halo or something above his head. He's he's an individual. Um, And has this physical interaction. Um, But the other thing you see here is the hospitality that is displayed by Abraham and Sarah in their reaction to, yeah, it's, it's God. But also just the whole idea of this is how you respond in hospitality. And we're going to see that when, they, when his servant, I think it's in 24, goes to find... Um, a wife for Rebecca, or a, a, a wife for Isaac in Rebecca. We're going to see a very similar picture play out of this hospitality that is, that is displayed and is so important. And um, we'd like to think that, well, we'd act at least like that if God came, but I'm not exactly sure we would. Um, but we see this, this immediate reaction, um, although the the practical person in me is going, they've got to be sitting there for like three or four hours, right? 
waiting for this because they got to go kill the calf. They got to skin the calf. They got to butcher the calf. Then they got to cook the calf. It's clearly not aged meat, but it's young meat. So I suppose that's okay. Um, and Sarah's, Sarah's in there making cakes and doing all this. And this is, this is a, they're there for a while. They take a, take a significant break from their journey, but treated very well. And it does make you think of, of the idea that um, when Jesus says, you know, or, or when we say, well, when did we do this for you, Christ? And it's when you take care of those in need, basically. That the idea is that we take care of everybody the way we would God himself. That we treat with hospitality, even those who are not God, with, with great graciousness and kindness. And we're given the, the model here of this is what that looks like. Um, and we also see that it's Abram, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, yeah, they're, Abraham's in charge. Sarah's making the cakes and Abraham's making sure that um, he went out to the herd and he's choosing the calf and he's got people to do all these things. They both do. They're very wealthy people, um, but they are actively involved rather than saying, yeah, servant, go take care of this. I'm going to stay here and enjoy the guests. They're, they're making sure that everything gets taken care of the way it's supposed to, and then they bring it to their guests themselves. Um, it's, a, it's just a beautiful picture of hospitality. I know people who are very, very hospitable, Dave and Jan, and they, uh, this is an incredible encouragement to others when you behave this way to those in the body. Um, and it is something that you have to practice. It's one of those things that's the... Uh, expectation of elders are supposed to be hospitable. And this is, it's not just, well, I don't yell at people when they come to my door. It's, <laughs> you're actually trying to make everyone feel like you're, you're actually entertaining the Lord. You're actually serving the people. You're acting as a servant to them when they come to your house, um, when they come in your presence. Um, and it's a, it's a team effort here. There's so many things we could dwell on in this, uh, but we should keep moving. So we hit verse 9 then in this narrative, and we see that then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. They know where Sarah's at. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And I'm sure he's just said this loud enough to make sure that Sarah, who's standing in the tent, is listening. And sure enough, she's listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? So both of them would not be expected to be able to have children here, is I think what she's saying. But it is interesting that, that where is Sarah, and all of us would do this, as soon as, if we're in the other room working, and all of a sudden someone says our name, it's like, okay, I'm listening now. So basically, making sure Sarah's paying attention here and the promise is given. And Sarah responds to this promise. And she laughed to herself saying, after I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Whenever God asks a question, be honest when you answer it. It's another recurring theme here in Genesis. It again makes you think back to, why are you hiding? 
Why are you hiding yourself from me? We're going to go for a walk. So Lord asked, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Again, the men rose up from there. God spoke, done, leaving now. So we see the promise of a son is given, not only that that he's coming, but when it's going to occur. God makes it very clear uh, in this prophecy. And Sarah is caught in doubt and then is also, makes it worse by lying about the doubt she has. Don't want to be too difficult on her because, again, she is being rational here. Um, She's looking at what can actually happen. Now, understand she also just made dinner for God. Um, so she sh- to have exceptional things happening shouldn't be too out of question. But um, Sarah gets caught in it. So we have an exact prophecy that's given. And then we see now verses 16 through 33. And I think it'd be, it's tempting to say, okay, we've covered enough for this week. This, this actually goes with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But... That's not what verses um, 16 through 21 say. 16 through 21 says this deals specifically with what we've covered so far in chapter 17 and 18. The men, look, the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham, Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about. So we see the whole point of the story of, or the whole point of this occurring in relationship to the circumcision and the promise specifically of Isaac. No, it's not coming through. The promise isn't through Ishmael. It's through Isaac. Abraham, you're going to be a great nation. That's what this is all about. Again, it emphasizes what the circumcision was all about. He's going to be a great nation. Because he's going to be a great nation, God wants him to understand the way he deals with nations. It's the fact that he has chosen him to make a mighty nation out of him. He wants him to know that you need to be sure that you are doing righteousness and justice. So not only do you act rightly, but you judge people rightly. So that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So God is showing him this is what is expected of you. This is the way I deal with nations who do not deal well. And I am going to deal with my own children before I deal with the nations around them. It makes you think of Amos. I was just talking to my dad about this last night. Amos is still one of my favorite books of the Bible, probably my favorite. When, when Amos, who's from the south, goes up to the northern country, the kingdom of Israel, and says, 
hey, I'm here to prophesy from God. Here's all the bad things that's going to happen to all of the nations around you in chapter one. Chapter two, he says, but you, Israel, here's what's going to happen to you because you're God's people and I'm going to judge you for your sin now. So God is making clear to Abraham what's involved with being a nation, what his descendants after him are going to have to deal with. And Moses is relaying this to the people of Israel. This is what God expects of nations and this is what happens. And this isn't, a, this isn't an abstract thought because within the life of the next commander of Israel after Moses, these things happen and are carried out by actual Israelites in the promised land after they've moved in. So it's a, it's a real concern that, that God has that he needs to show Abraham what he's about to do. So in verse 20, and the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. And I think this also kind of shows us uh, the idea that there is an outcry of sin that is made. We see the earth crying out from the blood of Abel. And we see creation itself, all of the, 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 everything that exists that makes up a community cries out because of the sin that's present in that community. The cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is, outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. And it's because of this sin. And then we see, well, God's going to go down and see if they've done it entirely according to the outcry. Now, does God know what's gone on in Sodom and Gomorrah? Please say yes. Okay. So what does he mean? What's, what's, he, what's he, if he's not doing it to see what exactly happened down there, why is he saying, I'm going to go see what's going on? What could the point be of that? Okay. He's going to get Abraham's, react, Abraham's reaction. Abraham's about to react and God is setting the stage for that to take place. And when they go through, we're, we're not there yet, but they're going to they're gonna bargain about how many righteous people you have to find in order to destroy a community. But if you back up a little bit, in verse 19, we see, For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And I kind of touched on it, but righteousness is the doing of good and justice is the judging of what is good and judging rightly. Judging righteousness, making sure righteousness is done. And if it's not done, judging it accordingly. And what we see here is God is going through the steps of being just, of judging correctly the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not from afar, but actually being involved in what's going on. He's even giving a, a, an example to Abraham. This is how you do this. You look and you see, is this really what's going on? And based upon what you find... You judge accordingly. God is being a good and righteous judge here. It is certainly righteousness to judge Sodom for what happens or what is happening in that community. But God displays justice as well in the way he carries it out. So verse 22, the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Don't just pass over that Abraham became near, or Abraham came near and said, Abraham is stepping forward to the Lord to challenge him. He has this amazing relationship with God that he can do that. 
Um, and he says, will you, and Abraham pleads for the righteous. He pleads for the people. I think Abraham is a soft-hearted guy. He pleaded for Ishmael. So Abraham pleads for the people. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all earth deal justly? It's really nice that Abraham defines for God what a good God is like. So the Lord said, if I find Sodom 50 righteous within the city, that I will spare the whole place on their account. Rather than saying, Abraham, I know how many are there. This is, just a, this is just an exercise in displaying justice. But Abraham, or God is gracious to Abraham here. 50, okay. Abraham replied, now, behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. I get that, God. But uh, suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? He said, I will not destroy it, even if I find 45 there. Um, I love Abraham's dealing here. What if the 50 are lacking five? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? He's, he's actually kind of cranked the number way, way down to five. Um, but God doesn't let him get away with it. I won't destroy it for 45. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. Because I know you, you have every right to be, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, now behold, I venture to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. And in Abraham's mind, he had to be thinking each time he ratcheted the number down. Oh my gosh, there's not even 10. There's not even 10 righteous people in that place because God is still going to go judge. He knows what God is doing. He knows God knows the state of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he knows as soon as God had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. And again, we see God finishes the conversation. God judges. God declares what he's going to do. It's done now, Abraham. And the Lord finishes speaking and departs. And Abraham returns to his place. And Abraham must have been fairly distraught at this point. He just, he just risked his own skin to plead before God, understanding his position versus God's for people that aren't going to, they're not going to make it. God's going to judge. Very important again in the context here because as Moses gives this to the people of Israel, they are about to go in and destroy every living thing. Man, woman, child, beasts, and completely remove from the face of the earth entire groups of people. And it's really good for them to hear God saying, I deal with nations and I deal fairly with nations. I deal with nations and I don't just do this arbitrarily because you need some good land. I deal with people justly because of the sin that's in them. I'm a patient God. I'm a good God. 
but I have to judge unrighteousness. I have no choice. So a, a, a wonderful picture of who Abraham is as a person as well as the God we serve and the ability to go before him and plead to him and have him respond. God's response to Abraham is just so full of grace and mercy. And ultimately his response to the people of Sodom is shown here as being, I am full of grace and mercy, but I also do what's right and I judge rightly. So, 17 and 18, we group together, and 15, 16, 17, 18, they're all grouped together because they're all dealing with the fact that Israel is going to be a nation, and what is that going to look like, and why is God doing it? And given in the middle of this is this sign of the circumcision. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It'll be a covenant that's for you and all your descendants after you. All of you are involved. This was clearly a problem. This giving this sign was clearly going to be a problem where man was going to take and make it different than what it was intended to be and make people use it to try and lord over others that, hey, you have to be circumcised if you really want to be good, if you really want to be uh, people of God, this is what it's going to take. Even, even today, we see people saying, these are the things that it takes to be, here's the outward signs you have to show in order to have the inward change of your heart, in order to have the relationship with God. But that was a problem even back in Moses' day. In Deuteronomy 10, 16, um, I'll jump up to verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. So that's what this whole thing was about. And you don't have to turn to Deuteronomy to see what this is about. We saw that in chapter 17, but... Here, it's clearly laid out. You and your descendants after you, God made you a people, a nation for himself. He set his affection and his love on you. So circumcise your heart. There's no foreskin involved here. This is, the expectation is, not just for the men, not just for the slaves, not just for the children that aren't in the line, but the women as well, Everyone should have a circumcised heart. It's just a sign of what was in 17 verse 1. Walk before me and be blameless. That's the expectation. Here's the sign that that's who you are. And then we turn over to Jeremiah 4.4. 4. I always have to do the books of the Bible to find Jeremiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Okay. Jeremiah 4 4. In verse 3, for though, thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because the evil of your deeds. So again, walk blameless, walk before me and be blameless is what he's saying. And again, it's the foreskin of the heart. It's the, the remove those things about you that are preventing you from being the true people of God. The true people of God are circumcised in the heart. It's a heart issue that God is dealing with specifically. And he expects his people to have this outward sign that shows this inward condition is present. But it doesn't, it doesn't go away. It's still, this whole issue is still there. Romans 3. Romans 3, 1. What advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? What's the point? If the whole point is that you're saved by righteousness that is granted to you, declared for you by faith, then why even offer circumcision as being an option. So what's the advantage of being circumcised? Paul says, great in every respect. First of all, they're entrusted with the oracles of God. First of all, the Bible that you have to this point, the Old Testament you have, is because God chose a people out for himself and gave them the word of God so that they would have it and you can know it. So there is some benefit to being the people of God and and to have that. But what then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? And we can't get into all of chapter 3, but it's basically saying that God is faithful whether man is faithful and does all the things that he's supposed to do. God is still the one who's faithful, and that certainly was described back in 17 and 18 in Genesis. But jump down to verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So we see that that there is a righteousness that is not obtained through the law. Well, that's not a new idea that Paul has come up with because we saw that Abraham was declared righteous for his faith before circumcision was given. We are saved by grace through faith, not through externals, not through baptism, not through the taking of communion, not through circumcision, None of those things bring about salvation. And yet we're commanded to do baptism, right? All of you who have not been baptized as believers should be baptized as a believer. God makes that very, very clear that that's the expectation. But that isn't what saves. Our righteousness is apart from the law. The fulfillment of the law is not how people are saved. So the role of external religion for Abraham isn't to gain righteousness. Righteousness comes by faith because none of us can keep the law. If you keep on reading there in Romans 3, you see that. And then just Romans 4, 9 through 12, we see it again. The blessing 
then on the, is the blessing on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. You don't need to be circumcised in order to be declared righteous. They're, they're totally separate. They occurred at different times. And the righteousness of faith occurred before the, the external sign, the seal of that righteousness. And the fathers of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also those who follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. And then over in Galatians, we'll finish there, Galatians 5. And you know where Galatians is because Gentiles eat pork, right? Preach. What? I said preach. preach. <laughs> they eat good pork, don't they, Jay? Uh, Galatians 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit for you. If you rely on circumcision, Christ is no benefit, is what it's saying. If you want to take on circumcision, and that was the, the challenge. There were people saying in order to be right with God, yes, you need Christ, but add to it this. Those of you with a Catholic background understand that, yes, you're given you're given some standing with God, but then you have to add to it. And he's saying, if you want to add to it, if you want to add circumcision, then Christ is no better for you or is no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. If you want to go down that road, then you're going to do the whole thing. You need to go back and read what the whole law says because you aren't just going to pick and choose. You have been severed from Christ you who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Not new. Old. He is expounding upon what was found back in, in Genesis. Abraham believe God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then we have here clearly stating that circumcision did not have a bearing on it. The law does not have a bearing on it. We are saved by grace through faith and that that faith is not based on keeping specific commandments. That faith or that, that righteousness that we have is not based on that. It's based on God himself declaring us righteous because of our faith. I think I may have muddled that. Did I muddle that? No, it's okay. Okay. I'll pray and we can be done. Lord, we thank you so much that you are uh, working in our hearts and our minds to help us know and understand you, that you have made it so clear where salvation comes, Lord. We are people, though, that want to do works. We're people who want to um, do things. We like to earn things. We like to show that our, we're worth uh, where our worth is, Lord. And I just thank you that you show us that we cannot 
earn what it is that you give. It's all received by faith, Lord, that uh, we have to believe and then trust in those things. And Lord, I pray that as an outworking of that, that those that have believed would show the external signs of their belief, not just in the things like communion, not in the things like baptism, Lord, but even beyond that, in the way we act, that we would walk holy and blameless before you as a, as a sign of what has taken place in our hearts because of the way you have changed us and circumcised our hearts themselves to be faithful to you and enjoy you and, and do good. Pray that these things will be clear where I made the muddle, Lord, and that um, individuals who are challenged will find answers in your word for you are a great and gracious God who loves for people to know him and that you teach us, Lord, as we study your word and we listen to it preached. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.